Did you know that Schubert's Symphony No. 8 in B minor is regarded as the ultimate unfinished symphony? Musicologists still debate as to why Schubert never completed it. We'll discuss this and other interesting facts about music with composer Lucas Cantor on this episode of The Curious Professor. I'm Dr. B. Welcome to the Curious Professor podcast, where I take listeners on a journey of discovery to explore the people, places, artifacts, and natural wonders that spark my curiosity. On this episode of the Curious Professor podcast, we'll explore the world of music with composer, producer, multi-instrumentalist, and conductor Lucas Cantor. But first, a trivia question. The Wu-Tang Clan released a science fiction web series that focuses on eating White Castle sliders on a spaceship. What makes the sliders they promote in this series so special? I'll have the answer for you at the end of this episode. I'm thrilled to have Lucas Cantor on the show today. Among his many accomplishments, Lucas has worked in NBC's music department for the multiple Olympic Games, and he won two Emmys for the Olympics in 2008 and 2012. Lucas co-produced Lord's cover of Everyone Wants to Rule the World on the Hunger Games Catching Fire soundtrack. He co-wrote the theme music for Major League Soccer on Fox, and he finished Schubert's Unfinished Symphony with Artificial Intelligence. He's written orchestral works for iconic brands and scored films and television shows for Netflix, DreamWorks, Lucasfilms, Disney, the Wu-Tang Clan, and many others. When I learned about Lucas's incredible experiences in the music business, my curiosity was immediately piqued and I wanted to learn more. I hope this interview with Lucas will spark your curiosity, too. Welcome to the show, Lucas. It's great to have you here. Thank you. It's, uh, it's great to be here. So why did you choose music as a profession? I don't know if I chose uh, Yeah, I chose it, I guess. I was in college. I was in college for English, actually. And I was on, playing on the lacrosse team at Drew University. And I spent all my time in the music building practicing guitar. I had, you know, I had played throughout high school and I just realized I was spending more time on that. And it seemed like I was in college really kind of as a lacrosse player. And there's not really much future. There wasn't for me. I wasn't at that elite level where I was going to be able to become a professional lacrosse player. And even a professional lacrosse player is a part-time gig. So I thought, well, you know, music is hard and challenging and fun. Maybe I'll pursue that. And it was really kind of that simple. I went to a conservatory and I just spent a lot of time and energy practicing and learned jazz. And then after a couple of years of playing jazz in New York City, I decided to move out to Los Angeles and make a go of it as a classical composer. So that's the or film composer, whatever, orchestral composer. So that's the short story. And what has been your most interesting job to date? My most interesting project to date, you know, I, I think the secret to my success, if I've had success, and if this is a secret, is that I am intensely interested in every project that I work on. So I'm doing one right now that I 
can't talk about, but by the time this airs, it will probably be available. And maybe, maybe we can do like an audio drop of what it is later, but it's really, I'm just really into it. I'm just really sort of deep diving into it and I, I love it. But, uh, but there've been a lot that have been really fascinating and it's almost impossible to tell for me, which ones are going to be air quotes hits and which ones are just going to sort of fade away. If you would ask me at any given time to say whether what I was working on was going to catch the public consciousness or not, I, I generally have no idea. And I would almost always get it wrong. I feel that way about my writing. Usually when I'm excited about a project and I think it's going to be hit, it never is. And then something I'm scared to release and I'm not sure if it, people are going to take to it are the most successful projects. So you just never know. Isn't it funny? So this is that's one of the reasons that I like to say, and this is somewhat controversial with artistic people, that I don't think it's art until you until there's an audience. Because the audience tells you something that I think makes it a more human experience. Otherwise, you're just kind of doing stuff. But until you get feedback on it, it really it really doesn't mean much. That's that's what I think anyway. What do you feel has been your most challenging project to date? Depends. You know, it just it's it's hard to it's a hard question to answer because some projects, every project is challenging for a different reason, or, or else it's really not that memorable. I recently did a project for Netflix that was a promo for their new He-Man property, which is what they wanted to do was a mashup of, they basically wanted to do a trailerized version of Bonnie Tyler's Holding Out for a Hero. And they didn't have the the stems, you know, they didn't have the recording session available to me. So I just had to use the master, but they wanted it to be sort of very specifically tailored to this spot. And so that was, it was just really fun. I had to I had to use a bunch of techniques that I don't get to use a lot. I had to collaborate really closely with my mixer to make sure that all that worked out. And that was pretty challenging, but it was also, I mean, it wasn't, it was at no point unpleasant. It was just different than what I'm used to doing. And so that was really fun. I think the most challenging projects are usually the ones where there's not a lot of money and nobody is very into it, but I've, I've, I'm lucky enough that I've been able to say no to those recently. So I was going to ask you if you have been offered a project where you didn't feel like it was a good fit or you just didn't feel, weren't feeling the vibe of the project. Yeah, it's funny as a freelancer, even though I'm, I guess I'm, I guess I'm at the point where I can say no to like free stuff, but I, I always feel bad. I never want, I never want to say no. I always want to do whatever someone puts in front of me. And I, I mean, literally if some random person called me off the internet and tried to get me to score their film for free, I would have to like, I would have to psych myself into telling them that I couldn't do it because my instinct is to be like, yeah, sure. Great. Send everything. I'll, you know, I'll do it right now. So I've been involved in, in many projects where I regretted (laughs) getting involved in them, but you know, it's just, that's part of, I think, growing up as an artist and part of the learning process is just learning what to say yes to and what to say no to, and then hopefully getting to the point where saying yes and no are options. I'm always so flattered when someone asks me to write music still that I, I, I want to do it for them. Those are entirely different things. Being able to say no and having the option to say no are are different. Yeah, de- yeah, those are definitely different things. I have to admit that I spent quite a bit of time on your website listening to your work. Thank you. I think my favorite pieces were your Other Worlds collection. What do you consider your favorite work to date? Oh, that's good. Well, thank you for listening to that. And I'm actually recording one of those. So yeah, I'm recording a piece from that collection, I think. And my favorite, I've got, a. there are a couple things that I like, but again, it's, it's, I can never tell. I tend to like them better once I realize that the audience has liked them. You know, there are some things that I, that I like that I have released that have not gotten a lot of attention that I think will eventually, like someone will discover it and they will like it. But for the most part, my favorite ones that are out there are the ones that people respond to, because that's, 
what energizes me as a as an artist is the audience response. So some of my favorite stuff is on Spotify. I have an album called Space Hustle, which is like a funky jazz type album that is uh, that I did actually ten years ago, twelve years ago, and forgot about and rediscovered during the pandemic as I was you know going through old files and didn't have much to do. And I found this and I said, "Wow, this album is finished and it's good." And I don't know why I never released it. So. So I did, and uh, it's gotten some it's gotten some attention on Spotify. And one of the other, I, I, I was a uh, I worked with a friend of mine named James Roberson on Spirit Riding Free, which was a Spirit TV show. And some of that music is some of my favorite stuff that I've done. I get to play a lot of banjo, a lot of guitar, a lot of mandolin on that. And uh, I also did a TV show called Cannon Busters, which is an anime, and that was for Netflix. And that music was super fun because it was they instead of having a score to picture, they just had us make sixty or seventy tracks. And so there was really they gave us direction, but there was really a lot of freedom. And that that for me was as someone who has a background in making records. It was nice to be able to go back to that and not have the the world of film scoring sort of in my head to just be able to go back and make, all right, I want to make a piece of music that's cool for, you know, three minutes rather than I need to make sure that it's telling a specific story. Uh, you also stated on your website that jazz is your first love. What do you like most about it? What do I like most about it? Well, I think like most first loves, I don't know if I remember exactly what attracted to me, what attracted me to it in the first place. But jazz is a uniquely American art form, which is one thing that I just find endlessly fascinating. It is a new way of understanding how music works. It's a, I mean, it's a synthesis of a bunch of existing ways, but it's, but in that synthesis, it's new. And it gives musicians access to different tonalities and different sonorities than we've had access to in the, in the past. I mean, jazz is, music is 40,000 years old and jazz is about 120 years old depending on how you count. Maybe it's only 70 years old. So the the novelty of it, I find really interesting. I It's also a bit of a um, fraternity slash soror. I, I don't know how you say what I'm trying to express in a gender neutral way, but it is, it's a bit of a club and the people who are initiated into it can discuss music in specific ways that are interesting and lead to different, to different outcomes. And so, so that's, that's one of the things I love about it. I love the fact that it's, that it's different and that it's kind of exclusive and the exclusivity is just based on people who like it and chose to study it or were lucky enough to have the opportunity to study it. So, so yeah, I guess that's what I love about it. And listening to it, you know, it's, it's a, it's a style of music with a lot of layers and you can get a lot out of listening to a jazz record. The more you know about the people who are playing it, the period in which they were playing it and what was going on during that time. So there are, I, you could, I could play you Miles Davis's kind of blue and just about any person would enjoy it. You know, it's just, it's just nice music to listen to, but there are a lot, there was a lot going on in 1958 when it was recorded and all of the musicians involved in that had a lot going on and they were all about to take off into their own careers. And, and they all had these sort of unique perspectives that Miles Davis brought together in the specific moment. And every jazz album has a story like that. So that's another thing that I really enjoy about it. You may not be able to answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Who is your favorite sure. musician? My favorite musician. Yeah, I can't really answer that question. It's, but I mean, I'll, I'll answer it. Uh, I, I would say Chris Thiele is probably one of my favorite musicians, maybe Bela Fleck. But I, I mean, I could list them forever. There's currently, you know, if you think about how many geniuses are around at any given time in humanity, there are, and, and, if, and if you 
accept or believe that genius is a function of statistics, right? That, you know, for every 100 people, there's one genius or for every 1000 people, there's one genius. Then that means that there are more geniuses around today than there ever have been because there are more people around today than there ever have been. And we have easier access to them. So Chris Thiele and I may never have been in the same city, but I've heard his music many, many times. And if I were born in 1790 in Sicily, I probably never would have heard Mozart or Beethoven or or Schubert because even though they were a couple hundred miles away, that connection didn't really exist. And today, a genius who doesn't even speak English who lives in China is completely accessible to me as a musician. So it's hard to say that the, who my favorite musician is because there's so many of them. There's so many brilliant ones. You were commissioned to finish Schubert's Unfinished Symphony using AI. How did that come about? I was friends with the technologist who who was in charge of the, the AI part of it. And we had discussed doing this. He was someone I met in London when I was out there doing some recording for a different project. And he's a friend of a friend. Another. This is why I love professors. So he's a professor and he's a friend of another professor. And, and there's, a, there's a small part of me that kind of wishes I got a PhD so I could hang out with you guys more. But yeah, we, uh, he and I uh, met and we discussed the idea of using AI to finish Schubert's Unfinished Symphony. And I said, I'd be interested in trying it out. And at the time we were discussing it, this was a thing that we were going to do, you know, as a MIDI mock-up and maybe perform it for a couple of grad students, you know, electronically. And then we all drink some beers and talk about how we did it. And then he is somehow involved with Huawei, the tech company that uh, no Americans, including myself, have really ever heard of, but is the largest technology company in the world. Um, so, so they, uh, and my manager at the time ha- had to say, yeah, so this project is with Huawei. And I was like, who's that? Is that a, is that a person? I don't, but he explained to me that they were a gigantic company. And so when Huawei got involved, they said, well, let's not do this as an academic exercise. Let's spend any amount of money you want and get this done right. So, uh, you know, you tell us what it takes to make a production like this. And so that was, as a composer, that's a dream come true because, you know, as a composer and a producer, the, the dream client is someone who knows what they want, but completely relies on you to get it done and is willing to foot the bill. So they were, um, at the time they were, you know, there was some politics between them and President Trump. And I got asked about that a little bit. And my answer was simply, they are the best creative partners I've ever had. And that's really all I know about them. So if you're asking me for a grade on Huawei, I would give them an A plus. But that's how it came about was that it was an idea that I had with a with an academic. It was really his idea. And I said, I'd be happy to help. And then tech company got involved and they decided to do it on a bigger scale. So we got to really do it, which was amazing. And it was a, yeah, it's kind of a dream come true gig for a composer. And you did a TED talk about what artificial intelligence taught you about music. What has it taught you? Well, thinking about artificial intelligence has taught me a lot about music and I should be, I should be humble and say that it was a TEDx talk. So I was not on the, the actual TED stage. This was an independently organized event, but still something, right? And the, the talk was about what my, I'm working on a book also, and this is, you know, I keep saying this in interviews and, you know, it's now been a couple of years. I think some people are probably like, all right, put up or shut up, but I have an agent. I'm very close to a contract. And the book came about because as I was doing Schubert's Unfinished Symphony, I really started asking all these sort of existential questions about what is music? What does it mean to write music? And when we premiered the piece, part of the part of the show was that I had to do a press junket and they had press from all over the world. And the question that they asked me the most was, what does it mean? What does it mean that a computer can write music? And this really, it really struck me because 
my instinct was to say it doesn't mean anything. I, I mean, I don't know. It's just a thing that we did with technology. It doesn't have a broader meaning. But I realized that this was part of a larger conversation that we've been having as human beings forever, which is what is our relationship to technology? And because technology is magic until it's until it's just everyday use and good technology is useful and great technology is invisible. And we, I think as the technology starts to develop, we feel this important need to understand what it is before we let it run our lives. Because I think we subconsciously know that once we let it in, it's going to change the way that we live and, and it will be too late. Mobile phones are a perfect example. I mean, we could have spent 10 years trying to decide, is this really something that we want to do? But now our society just simply would not exist without them and and can't really exist without them in the form that it currently takes. And I think part of what those reporters were asking me was, is this a turning point for music? Are we about to enter a world in which music is going to be different than it has been in the past? And is that okay? And are we jumping off a cliff blindly and abandoning one of our most treasured art forms? And my answer to that is no. So simply, no, we're not. But but it's more complicated than that. And the discussion about what music is and how music is created and whether music can be created by machines is an interesting and complex one. And I tried to distill it into eight minutes in my TEDx talk. I don't know if I succeeded. And I'm now going to try to distill it into about 300 pages in a book. And we'll see if I, if I can do any better. That's awesome. It's exciting that you're going to be writing a book on that topic. I'm looking forward to being able to read it. Thank you. I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. So let's go into your podcast, which is called Book Society. Tell us about that. Yeah, Book Society is a true side project. I, you know, I'm a musician by profession and I make my living doing music things, but I also love to read. And one of the things I started doing during the pandemic was having Zoom calls with my friends. And it turns out that for I think obvious reasons, we were all reading quite a bit more. And so we started talking about books. And one of my one of my pet peeves in the world in life is that in Los Angeles specifically, when you go to a dinner party, you generally end up talking about television. And the reason for that is that it's a touchstone, everybody watches it. And in my circle, a lot of people also work in television. So watching it is part of our job. And I miss, you know, I miss talking about books. So I over the pandemic got kind of serious and specific about having, you know, informal book discussions with my friends. And sometimes it would be that we have a phone call and I just rant to them about a book for an hour. Um, and I just realized that, you know, I think this would be, I, I, it was a combination of that. And also I'm, I'm an outgoing person and there was no opportunity to meet any new people during the pandemic. So I conceived of this idea and I thought, well, this would be great because I could call people that I don't know who I've always wanted to talk to and then get a little window into their into their thinking because they record the the format of the podcast is that the guest recommends the book. We both read it and then we discuss it for an hour. So I end up reading many books that I have never would never have found on my own. And it's really interesting because some of these are distinguished guests and I ask them to pick something, you know, I, I say it's completely up to you, but it's probably more fun if it's something that is foundational to you, but not necessarily in your area of expertise specifically. And so, you know, you end up finding out a lot about people's secret obsessions and also just going deeply into people's thinking that you in ways that you never would have that you never would have uh, heard from these people and some of them are authors but we talk about other people's books rather than their own so it's been really fun and th I mean that's basically the bottom line is if you if you're enjoying you know hearing me on this podcast you probably enjoy my podcast too it's just it's the same thing I talk to smart people like uh, like Professor Bryson, and you know, although on my podcast I do less talking. Well, it sounds like a awesome podcast. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but now that you tell me the topic and how it's set up, I'm very curious to listen to a few episodes. 
If you could invite three famous people, living or dead, to dinner, who would you invite and why? Do they have to be famous people? And what's the definition of famous in this in this question? An individual that most people would recognize. I like being pedantic about these questions because <laughs> because you, you know as as you probably do too. I get I get them all the time. So uh, you know, fame in our society today is just a lot different than it used to be. And you know, fifty years ago, you we would be talking about heads of state pretty much exclusively and maybe some celebrities. But today, fame is a relative term. And there, there are many people. I mean, I don't really know a lot about PewDiePie, but he has 100 million fans. You know, So that's someone who's very, very famous to some people, but a complete unknown to others. And so if I had to restrict it to famous, living or dead by the old definition, you know, probably Napoleon, Julius Caesar, and maybe Abraham Lincoln or something. But but I don't I don't know if that would be a that would be a bad dinner party because I think Caesar would be just like really full of himself and very confused. And Napoleon would be pissed that I didn't invite George Washington. You know that Napoleon shut down France for a week on Washington's death. He put no. the country into mourning on upon Washington's death. That's interesting. Yeah. Fun fact, everyone. But if I were to answer it a different way, as people who I who are you know fa- like if I could just get the three people that I would want in a room and hang out with them for uh, the course of a of a dinner, I would probably pick. And we're assuming we have some sort of like Star Trek level language translator, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let's go with Cicero. I think he would be fun to hang out with. Yeah, he'd probably like to drink too. So I bet I bet he'd be I bet he'd be a bit of a trip. All right. So I'd go with Cicero. I think Sargon. No, Shulgi. Shulgi, the Mesopotamian ruler of Ur Shulgi. Because he seems like uh he seems like he'd be a fun guy. Maybe Sargon. Maybe Shulgi and Sargon and Cicero. Oh, and Alexander the Great. That's gonna be an interesting dinner party. That's probably gonna be a fist fight. <laughs> Especially if you get too much drinking going on. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you'd like to tell us about you or your work? Ah, uh, I think I expanded on it. I, you know, I thought. I think I. I think you've probably heard enough. Uh, you know, they they say this. I don't remember who is an actor who said this, but that he said something to the effect of talking about music is like dancing about architecture. And so the best thing, if you want to know more about my music, is to probably go listen to some. I'm also you. You found me, or you found some of my stuff through my website, which is lucascantormusic.com. And I'm easily reachable through there. So if uh, you want to argue with me or be my friend, you can easily email me or text me through through my website. And I respond to basically everyone. So, and I enjoy it. And we're also in California, we're not on lockdown, but stuff is still not really normal. And so we're still, you know, I'm still in my home studio for most of the day. So happy to, uh, happy to talk to people. It's great though, because I have two kids and I get to hang out with them all day. I mean, as tragic and depressing that the pandemic has been in many ways, some positive things have come out of it too. It was great to have you on the show, Lucas. Thank you so much for taking time to be a guest on the Curious Professor podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And now for the answer to this episode's trivia question. The Wu-Tang Clan released a science fiction web series that focuses on eating White Castle sliders on a spaceship. What makes the sliders they promote in this series so special? The sliders promoted by the Wu-Tang Clan are vegan-friendly Impossible Sliders. The veggie burgers are a product of Impossible Foods, a company founded by the biochemist and pediatrician Dr. Pat Brown. We'll end the show with something punny. What type of music are balloons afraid of? Pop music. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Curious Professor Podcast. 
If there's a person, place, artifact, or natural wonder that has sparked your curiosity and you'd like for me to feature it on the show, please let me know. My website is thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe to The Curious Professor Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to become part of my community of curiosity seekers, be sure to visit my website, thecuriousprofessorpodcast.com, and join Dr. B's Hive. Until next time, always be learning and be curious with Dr. B.